It's a dark and stormy night, and we are trapped in a car with psychiatrist Dr. Loomis. He's been treating the murderer Michael Myers for 15 years, ever since the kid stabbed his sister and got locked up in Smith's Grove Sanitarium. Michael is Loomis's biggest responsibility, and honestly, his biggest failure. Michael doesn't talk, doesn't respond to treatment, doesn't seem to be getting better at all, only bigger. Now, all Dr. Loomis and Nurse Marion can do is pick up the full-grown killer to drive him to a judge. You haven't anything to worry about. He hasn't spoken a word in 15 years. Are there any special instructions? Just try to understand what we're dealing with here. Don't underestimate it. It. Don't you think we could refer to it as him? If you say so. Your compassion's overwhelming, Doctor. Marion's not wrong, but from Dr. Loomis's point of view, he spent 15 years trying to help Michael Myers, and halfway through, he gave up. Now, Dr. Loomis just sedates Michael with drugs. Heavy drugs. He'll barely be able to sit up. That's the idea. That's the idea. But that's not what happens. Michael Myers climbs on the car roof. He smashes through the window, nearly kills Nurse Marion, steals the car, and drives away. Nurse Marion is on the ground. Dr. Loomis is screaming. He's gone. He's gone from here. The evil is gone. Okay, first, the evil is not gone. The evil is headed to Haddonfield, where it will kill five people. And in the sequels, the evil is going to kill, like, 200 more people. Oh, and second, the evil? What kind of a doctor talks like that? A bad doctor, according to Dr. Anthony Tobia, a professor of psychiatry at Rutgers. And a bad person. After shouting out the evil is gone, of course, that is problematic in and of itself. Uh, Loomis doesn't even extend a hand to the nurse who is laying in the mud before he runs off. Dr. Tobia uses Halloween as an example of dangerous patients and dangerous doctors. Again, Loomis is not the best role model for psychiatry. Um, he, he comes off as very callous, very uncaring, with really only one goal, a goal that he's, uh, he's on board as saying that has been his only goal for the past seven years, and that is only to keep Michael Myers almost incarcerated. The worst thing here is that when we look back at what happened about eight years ago, all of this was formulated from a misdiagnosis. Uh, Loomis just misdiagnosed his patient and did not provide the proper care, resulting in Michael not getting better. As you can tell, Dr. Tobia takes horror films seriously. I mean, so seriously that he teaches a whole class about them. The main class is called Reviewing Mental Disorders with a Reverent Understanding of the Macabre, and it's known as Red Rum. Dr. Tobia has a diagnosis for all the famous slasher killers. Jason Voorhees, I actually believe, um, had what is called the fetal alcohol syndrome. Those facial features that actually define FAS happen to also be the very features of the old-time goalie mask. They include wide-set eyes, low-set ears, um, a flattened upper lip, etc. Whoa, what about Freddy Krueger? Freddy Krueger uh, meets multiple, di multiple diagnoses. He likely was afflicted with pedophilia. What about the kids who kill and scream? Very similar to Michael Myers' uh, antisocial personality disorder. I would say Michael Myers is very antisocial. He is a serial killer who goes into people's houses and stabs them. Of course, I'm not a doctor. I'm just your podcast host, Amy Nicholson. But on this episode of Halloween Unmasked, we're going to see if we can do a better job understanding Michael Myers, who he is and why he kills, than Dr. Loomis, who, let's be honest, kind of sucked. 
Dr. Tobia has a diagnosis for him, too. Maybe obsessive-compulsive disorder. He certainly seems obsessed. Obsessive and wrong. In those years when Loomis hadn't given up on him, things could have turned out differently? Exactly right. We'll ask Dr. Tobia how he would have treated Michael later in the show. But Dr. Tobia has the advantage of four decades of psychological research on serial killers like Michael. Because when Halloween came out, the word serial killer didn't even exist. I mean, literally, it was not in the dictionary. But we just couldn't conceive humans being capable of doing these kinds of monstrous acts. It had to be attributed to some kind of supernatural monstrosity. That's our serial killer expert Peter Vronsky, who's written two books about famous murderers. He's going to take us back to the 70s, when audiences who had once been scared of werewolves and giant bugs and the literal devil realized that the really scary monsters were their neighbors. Normal-looking men, like Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy. And Michael Myers is, is, is kind of interesting in that he reflects, um, you know, serial killers who were becoming prominent in that um, era, and, and in particular, um, Edmund Kemper. This was a serial killer in Santa Cruz. He doesn't escape the way Michael Myers does. Um, Worse, he's released. That was John's real-life nightmare. Remember from episode one when John was a kid in Bowling Green? He got taken on a class trip to an asylum and made eye contact with an inmate who gave him the creeps. What if he got out and came after me? Or what if John took control and turned his real-life nightmare into something he could control, a character in a movie? The escaped inmate Michael Myers might kill tons of other people, but it is literally impossible for him to turn around and stab his director. So that's one Michael Myers origin story. Here's another one. There's this novelization of Halloween that came out right after the first movie, and it has this strange theory about Michael Myers. The author claims that Michael Myers is possessed by an ancient druid spirit. The book is out of print, but we have to hear this explanation. So Bill Simmons, sports fan, Halloween mega fan, and head of The Ringer, has graciously volunteered to read the opening paragraphs. The horror started on the eve of Sam Hain in a foggy veil in Northern Ireland at the dawn of the Celtic race. That's Celtic, by the way. Uh, Bill's a sports guy from Boston. And once started, it trod the earth forevermore, wreaking its savagery suddenly, swiftly, and with incredible ferocity. And then it's less sated. It shrank back into the mist of time for a year, a decade, a generation perhaps. But it slept only and did not die, for it could not be killed. Could not be killed sounds like Michael Myers. And the holiday of Samhain did turn into Halloween. The book goes on to talk about this pagan hunchback teenager named Enda who kills this princess. Then he has his soul cursed to wander the earth all the way to Haddonfield, Illinois. Maybe that makes sense. Let me ask John. Oh, yeah, it's all made up. That's all bullshit. Yeah. Did you read it or? No, God, no. I don't. No, no, no. No, I understand it has something, some explanation or something in it. I don't know. No, I didn't read it. Okay, never mind. Although, the bad guy in Halloween 3 is Irish, and his whole goal is to make Halloween Samhain again. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Blood of animals. Okay, Michael kills animals. I mean, in the first film, he kills two dogs, one gruesomely. A man wouldn't do that. This isn't a man. A man would do that. I mean, killing animals is textbook serial killer behavior. But Loomis doesn't know that yet because Halloween came out before those textbooks were written. 
The 1970s are called the golden age of serial killers. That's when four out of five famous serial killers got their start. I mean, the son of Sam, Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer. It's when Jeffrey Dahmer cut off a dog's head and put it on a stake. Oh, and in California, this guy Ed Kemper did the same thing to cats. Some of you might know Ed Kemper from the Netflix show Mindhunter. I could feel it consuming my insides, this fantastic passion. Fantastic passion. It's a good phrase, no? Here's the Ed Kemper story. When Ed was a boy, he killed his grandparents for no reason. He said he just wanted to see what it felt like. And like Michael Myers, Ed was then sent to a mental hospital. But when he was 21, the same age as Michael in Halloween, his doctors let him out. And then Ed killed six schoolgirls. That's exactly what Dr. Loomis is desperate to prevent. Well, it was your patient, doctor. If precautions weren't strong enough, you should have told somebody. I told everybody! Nobody listened. I'm imagining Dr. Loomis knowing about Edmund Kemper, which he would have. If Halloween was happening in the real-world timeline, he would be screaming Ed's name to everyone. And I imagine Carpenter and, and um, uh, you know, as he's, as he's writing this, uh, would have been in the late 70s pretty much aware of Ed Kemper. That's Peter Vronsky again, the author of Sons of Cain, a history of serial killers from the Stone Age to the present. And thanks to experts like him, today we know all the serial killer cliches. He was quiet. He kept to himself. He was really, really mean to pets. And like Michael, he started young. Very often, um, serial killers begin to have their fantasies uh, as early as the age of five. Somewhere between the age of 5 and 14, these fantasies begin to crystallize in their imaginations and in their obsession. But when Halloween came out, no one in the audience knew any of that yet. Doctors had just started to study serial killers. I mean, because the son of Sam was arrested one year before Halloween, and Ted Bundy was arrested two months before it started filming. Last episode, producer Erwin Yablins told us about how Halloween's first title was The Babysitter Murders which he said he came up with because babysitters are innocent and empathetic and kind of hot. But right before Erwin Yablins came up with the idea, there was a famous babysitter murder on a holiday. On New Year's Eve, a killer broke into a house and attacked a teen girl. And just like what happened to Lori, he cut the telephone line first. I wonder if that might have influenced the film subconsciously, too. I mean, what we know for sure is that murders were suddenly everywhere, in all the headlines, maybe on your block. Michael Myers arrived right when we learned that the boogeyman was real. Audiences were terrified, but they didn't have the words. They would have just called Michael Myers a monster. I think we looked at serial killers Kind of the way, you know, Carpenter presents Michael Meyer in, in Halloween as these supernatural creatures. Literally supernatural. You know, humans have a hard time believing that people are that evil. It's easier for us to think that Dahmer and Ted Bundy and even Hitler don't share our DNA. We try hard to draw a line between us and them to say that we could never do that. That, like Dr. Loomis says, these boogeymen are born evil. Peter Vronsky disagrees. So uh, my argument basically is, is that we're all born capable of being serial killers, but we get unmade as serial killers, as opposed to the other way around. We've been deluding ourselves that humans and monsters are different forever. 
Peter went back and looked at old court transcripts from hundreds of years ago when we were literally putting, quote-unquote, werewolves on trial. So when I began to look at these um, werewolf trials, I discovered that what they're accused of actually doing, the evidence presented of them being a werewolf, was, for example, uh, you know, they were abducting children and mutilating children. Or um, they were attacking and raping peasant girls on the way to work, uh, on the way to the farm field, or on the way to the mark. And 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 so when I looked at these these um, Renaissance era trials, uh, I suddenly realized, you know, these are these are typical uh, serial killers. Which, in a way, brings Michael Myers all the way back to the beginning of horror films, where audiences were terrified to see a werewolf. We just had the wrong idea of werewolves. The name serial killer actually has a connection to old Hollywood movies. There were these thrilling shorts called serials that always ended with the audience wanting more. The psychiatrist who came up with the phrase... He argued that this was the perfect um, kind of term for serial killers because it described, first of all, kind of the mathematical structure, a serial structure of crimes, but it also, um, he said, encompassed that kind of um, cliffhanger that occurs at the end of every serial killer's murder. Um, they, they suddenly long to come back and, and, you know, do another episode. Labels are important. They help us understand the world, and without them, whatever's hiding in the darkness is even scarier. John Carpenter knew this instinctively. I mean, in the script where no one could see it, John just called his killer The Shape. Characters in the movie say the name Michael, but John doesn't. When John Carpenter made Halloween, he'd been reading this psychology book called The Mask of Sanity. It's about... Uh, sociopaths are psychopaths, and they appear to be human. They appear to be like you and I, but they're not. They're hunting you, they're out hunting you, or using you. And uh, I thought, oh my God, that's chilling. It's almost like a different species. They're not human exactly, which is what sort of spurred me into uh, this story. Well, he's not really human. He's sort of human, but he's partially supernatural, he's evil, incarnate, but not really, he's human. I love that 40 years later, John is still wrestling with how much he doesn't want Michael Myers to be human. And I love the title The Mask of Sanity because John took that idea and made Michael Myers literally wear a mask. And because of Michael, most other slasher movie killers wear masks. But masks aren't worn by killers in real life. Nothing comes to mind, but um, certainly not kind of um, decorative mask. Uh, that Michael Myers wore, but but you know it's 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 possible. It's possible, but Peter can't name one. But the Michael Myers mask is massively important to anyone who loves the franchise. As a rare Holy Grail prop, it is right up there with Dorothy's ruby slippers in The Wizard of Oz. If you want to lose weeks of your life, you can plunge into Halloween message boards and learn about Shoebox Gate, which is when one of the original masks was supposedly stashed in the shoebox because nobody thought it was going to become this sacred object. Here's how the mask is described in Halloween's script. Not a monster or a ghoul, but the pale, neutral features of a man. A human so vague that John Carpenter could just think of him as the shape. So a man, but not a famous man. It couldn't be a President Nixon mask, because then audiences would think of the killer as, like, President Nixon, and then Halloween would feel like a political satire or something. So Tommy Lee Wallace, John's number one Boy Scout, went to a costume shop to find a human mask that meant nothing at all. And, uh... I walked in and looked around, and I 
saw several different masks, including the aforementioned Nixon and Ford masks, and they were they tended to be a little cartoonish uh, caricatures of Richard Nixon and so forth. And uh, you know, I looked around and thought about it, and way at the end, I saw Spock from Star Trek, and right next to him was Captain Kirk. Only it didn't look especially like Captain Kirk. It just looked like just some bland, regular white guy. There's a reason why the Captain Kirk mask doesn't look like Captain Kirk. It is William Shatner, yes, but it's really from a horror movie called The Devil's Reign, which Shatner made several years and several pounds after Star Trek the TV show was canceled and he was bumming around doing really bad movies. The Devil's Reign is one of those super complicated, quasi-spiritual 70s horror movies. It's the kind of horror movie that made horror movies look lame. The kind that John Carpenter did not want people to confuse with Halloween. And in The Devil's Reign, William Shatner had to get a mold of his face made for this possession scene where he wears a mask of himself and he looks all blobby and awful, like someone soaked him in formaldehyde. And then the special effects company used the chubby Shatner mold to make and sell these mutant $1.98 Captain Kirk masks that don't really look like Captain Kirk. Tommy bought three. He ripped the sideburns off, he darkened the hair, he cut these big creepy eye holes, he painted over the eyebrows, and then he just painted the whole face white. As backup, Tommy also had a clown mask, and when he had a guy try it on, it was good. But then they tried the Shatner mask. Oh my god, it just had such an effect. Before you even had a story or a situation, you had, you could shoot this thing and terrify people. It was that powerful. So we were riding pretty high and uh, felt awfully good about what we had going in. Does William Shatner know about all of this? Well, kind of. This is him trying to explain it to his daughter. And they had made a death mask of me in Star Trek for some one, one of the shows for some reason. That was somehow, that I don't know how, was taken into the stores and sold as a death mask. Mike Myers picked up the death <laughs> mask. Or was it Mike Myers or somebody? It was Mike Myers. Yes, Shatner, it was Michael Myers. And he's got the rest of the story wrong too, but that's fine. It's not like anyone ever talked to him about it. In fact, John only recently got to meet him at a convention. John spotted Shatner at a table, and he walked over to introduce himself. Without looking up, Shatner just said, Nice to meet you. The name John Carpenter didn't register at all. So I'm still talking to Tommy Lee Wallace when he says something that surprises me. I was born after Halloween came out. You know, I've spent my whole life thinking of Michael Myers as this total package thing. A guy with a jumpsuit and a knife and a mask. Tommy reminded me that Michael Myers picked out his mask that day when he stole it and some knives and this rope he never uses from the hardware store. That means Michael Myers is in costume, too. Michael Myers thinks he's in disguise. And what does he put on? A human-type face. So there's some pathetic part of his froggy little brain that is trying to just be normal. Could that be it? What kind of mind makes a mask that starts with just a human face. The mask of sanity. Michael Myers needs his mask so much that when Laurie rips it off his face, he's so focused on getting the mask back on that he doesn't see Dr. Loomis run into the scene with a gun. You can't say enough about, by the way, the uh, mask 
itself as a way to, that contributed to the way the the move the, the character worked, the the stark blankness of it all. Nick Castle played the shape most of the time, so maybe he has an insight into who Michael Myers is. Well, then, what did you and John Carpenter talk about about him, about creating him? Nothing. <laughs> no, John didn't say anything. In fact, I remember the first time I was going to be in the movie, and it was a nighttime scene. I was supposed to walk across the street, and um, I, I got, put the mask on. I started out uh, to go across the street to come back, and I stopped in the middle of the street, came back, and said, John, this is my first shot. What am I supposed to do? He said, just walk. Get over there and walk over here. <laughs> That's what he said. Well, did you come up with any of your own motivation? No. No. Like I said, it's 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 very interesting this kind of thing. Uh um it's you really are a puppet. You know, really a, a puppet and John is the puppeteer. John didn't care what was inside Michael Myers. He just wanted to pull his strings. Tilt your head to the left or right. That's the, actually the most famous direction, I think, that fans ask about. They say, who came up with that idea when you stabbed that guy in the kitchen and, and, and you know, pinned him to the refrigerator or whatever it was, uh, that you kind of stopped to kind of admire your work by looking left and right? And I said, that was all John Carpenter. I, was, I remember actually standing there where he said, okay, now tilt your head to the right. So I did. Now tilt your head to the left. I'm thinking to myself, why is he making me do this? But uh, but it's very effective. I think what they see is a strange human being uh, admiring his work, you know, and that, boy, that's creepy. And then there's the walk. Deliberate, patient, almost graceful. John got that idea from Westworld, the original movie from 1973, not today's TV show, where John just loved Yul Brenner's robot gunslinger, who, like Michael Myers, can't be stopped. Here's the robot on the hunt, and then here is Nick tapping out his own pace with his hands. You know, it wasn't exactly plodding, and it wasn't obviously, he never got excited enough to run or, or, or even had a brisk walk. It was like the idea that the steady beat of him is scarier than, you know, him being either fast or too slow. That pace Nick is drumming on the table is terrifying because you know that even when Laurie Strode gets a running head start, Michael Myers will catch up. Why do you think he kills? I have no idea. And uh, uh, whatever, uh, God knows, I think that's where you just leave it and use your imagination. I, I frankly have never given it, you know, a thought. I'm going to rat out my producer, Zach Mack, for a second, because when Nick Castle came into our studio, Zach stared at him and was like, I'm sorry, but Michael Myers is smaller than I expected. My stats? I was... Well, five eleven and a half. Probably, I was really thin, like about 155, 160 pounds. Real skinny guy. Michael Myers is basically the same height and weight as Saved by the Bell's Screech. So raise your hand if you think you could take Screech in a fight. Okay, keep your hands up if you get why a skinny guy who stabs five people is even scarier. It might be even a little bit more disconcerting to have someone less imposing. You know, it's more like anybody could have been that guy. So, and anybody with the sh- with the mask off could have been the killer. And so, uh, in a certain way, the everyman idea of it is uh, is is uh, an interesting way to play it. 
in every man you could see on the street. A puppet, a blank face, a shape. Nick played Michael Myers like a void, and in a way, that's why Michael Myers is so scary. He's not bragging about sautéing you with fava beans. If he gets close to you, you're just dead. So what could Dr. Loomis have done to save Haddonfield? Let's analyze the doctor's strategy after the break. This episode of Halloween Unmasked is brought to you by Universal Orlando's Halloween Horror Nights, which brings together the stories and visions of the world's most notorious creators of horror. Select nights September 14th through November 3rd at Universal Studios Florida. From cinematic greats and crazed current cult favorites to the park's original abominations, every year the legend grows and your experience reaches beyond your wildest nightmares. Enter terrifying haunted houses inspired by the biggest names in horror, including, by the way, a Halloween floor maze. You're never quite sure if your spine is tingling with dread or sheer excitement. Surrounded in shadow by screams and mad laughter, face nightmarish creatures on streets twisted into sinister scare zones. As the sun sets on days filled with thrills, the night awakens with a frightening chill. Lose yourself in outrageous live shows filled with diabolically entertaining surprises. Escape to some of Universal Studios' most exhilarating attractions where heart-pounding takes on a different meaning until the horror calls you back. Learn more at HalloweenHorrorNights.com. That's HalloweenHorrorNights.com. Dr. Loomis knows how dangerous Michael Myers is. Despite all Dr. Loomis's screaming, despite the ethical shortcuts he takes to try to keep people safe, Michael gets out of the mental hospital just like Edmund Kemper, and he's no mentally healthier than when he went in. What was Dr. Loomis's wrong-headed strategy? Let's enjoy this speech from the actor who played him, Donald Pleasance. By the way, Donald Pleasance was the most expensive actor in Halloween's budget. He cost like three times as much almost as Jamie Lee Curtis. I met him 15 years ago. I I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Dr. Loomis tried to talk to Michael for eight years. Here's the problem with that. Michael's deficit isn't talking, so there's no way therapists could have possibly engaged Michael unless they had used nonverbal techniques, animal-assisted therapy, art therapy, music therapy. These nonverbal therapies would have probably made greater headway and would have actually, I don't want to use the word cured, but certainly would have helped the young Michael Myers. Is this really a thing? People have murdered and then gone silent? People have murdered. People have, um, I'll use more general terms, people actually have sustained trauma and then, yes, have gone silent. Yes, sometimes people who've uh, witnessed trauma go blind. True. But but does it change anything that he caused the trauma by doing the actual killing? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, it, on the surface, doesn't necessarily change anything that uh, he was the perpetrator of the trauma. However, you're assuming that the murder of his sister Judith is Michael's first trauma. And I don't think it was. Oh, what do you think? Uh, there's reason to believe that perhaps his own, his own older sister probably took some liberty with Michael with regard to what was happening in the, in the Myers home uh, back in 1963. Uh, again, you his mur- he- 
You believe he could have been molested? Why does he want to possess Judith? And I think it's uh, I think it's a dynamic of the family that is very maladaptive, and uh, we could only speculate what that might mean. And unfortunately, when the psychiatrist has details like this available to him or her, they have to invest investigate the possibility of sexual trauma. Wow, that's never occurred to me that he could have been molested. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was his mother that is molesting him and Judith is the displaced mother object or if it was Judith herself. You know, people who've watched Halloween, what misinformation are they absorbing about dangerous kids? Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to take the leap that uh, any child who suffers from sexual trauma is going to automatically be dangerous, nor would I want to make the leap that uh, any child who becomes aggressive is fated to spend his entire life institutionalized. Um, Child psychiatry, the entire field of uh, child psychiatry, of course, focuses on individuals working through, children working through their trauma and being very functional, uh, not necessarily on a yearly basis having to be committed and having uh, their—this is civil commitment, so having their civil rights taken from them only to spend year after year in places like Smith's Grove. Okay, so then how do we diagnose a dangerous kid correctly? Well, it turns out that when you list all the traits of potential child murderers, they fit a shockingly easy-to-remember acronym. When we look at the specific signs and symptoms taken from those diagnostic instruments, they uh, those um, those criteria actually meet, of all things, the acronym I. Shatner. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Can you explain that to me again? Indiscriminate sex, uh, superficial charm, a haughty sense of self-worth, affective shallowness, that is affective shallowness. Uh, T is a cheat. Uh, I have to give, uh, I have to actually cheat here and say the parasitic lifestyle is T. Uh, Then there's the need for stimulation. Uh, Again, individuals are usually very prone to boredom. Uh, Empathy lacking. And then the R, the uh, revocation of conditional release, which of course is the main theme in Loomis driving to the hospital to pick Michael up for that mental hygiene hearing. Has anyone ever called you Dr. Loomis? No. <laughs> no. A lot of things, but not Dr. Loomis. Dr. Loomis, by the way, is a name that John Carpenter stole from Psycho. Loomis is the name of Janet Lee's boyfriend who comes looking for her at the Bates Motel. And like Halloween's Dr. Loomis, he can be a real jerk to a crazy guy with a knife. And as we quickly mentioned last episode, John stole the name Michael Myers, too. He took it from that nice British film guy who helped Assault on Precinct 13 become a hit in England. Yeah, Michael Myers. Yeah, the Michael Myers. Sure. Yeah, really sweet man. And now his name is synonymous with evil. Well, how do you feel about his name being turned into this Michael Myers? Uh, I he he loved assault, but he wasn't sure about uh, Halloween. He wasn't sure about it, but it was a tribute to him because he, you know, he handled my, you know, my first really big film. So. I am very, very delightful man. I'm going to flag the word tribute and ask Erwin Yablins the same question, because Erwin knew the real Michael Myers a little better. His wife was a little upset. Years later, she came to me and she was very angry. Not that we had used his name, but that she had not participated in some of the financial gain that the movie made. (laughs) She was upset about that. But I'm sure his children... I'm very proud of that. This is Michael Myers. It's, it, 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 Michael, the Michael Myers 
name will never be the, thought of the same way again. Now, Michael is a super popular name in America, but it's not just even super popular. It's like crazy popular. For all of the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, Michael was ranked the number one name. And Myers is the 101st most common last name, which means that there are a lot of Michael Myerses out there who have had to live with this name their whole lives. We even tracked down a few. Because I am self-employed, my phone number is sprinkled around the internet, so I get crank calls from kids weekly being like, are you going to kill me? Are you going to kill me, Michael Myers? Oh, where's your mask? Where's your mask, Michael Myers? People, like, look at me like I'm crazy sometimes when I tell them my name's Michael Myers. Like, your parents made you that? Like, <laughs> I wish they had done Michelangelo because Teenage Mutant Turtles came out when I was in, like, third grade, and I would have been the coolest kid in class. From a child to today, any time that I have to say my full name, the first thing somebody will say is, oh, my God, like, the serial killer, oh, my God. The first time people started mentioning it, I didn't really know exactly what they were talking about. I want to say that I went to a video store. And then I finally realized that there was this whole new world. Halloween, baby. I would say seven times out of ten. I like to try to just play with them and act like I don't even know what they're talking about. The serial killer? What serial killer? You know, I'm Michael Myers. You know, that's me. I pass the name on to my son so he can endure the same things I do. But on the other hand, here's what it's like being Michael Myers if you're Nick Castle, the guy who's most famous for just playing him. There's something vulnerable about him. So that's kind of interesting. And you see it in the fans who love this character and are scared of him, too. Some of them are in love with the character, by the way. Yeah, this love word is so surprising. I feel like... People, I've okay, I've I've heard one person tell me that she has had her boyfriend put on the mask. (laughs) Yes. And then they, yes, exactly. (laughs) Was the boyfriend there? No, I don't remember talking to the boyfriend, but she was telling me, (laughs) I said, you're nuts. Michael Myers sex symbol? Uh, so what do you think he thinks about sex even? I don't think the man has had sex this whole time. <laughs> if he has, it's been with himself. Or <laughs> and and uh, But that, you know, that, that gets into a, the, the porno version of the shape. <laughs> now you've got me wondering what you even really know about sex if you lived your entire life in an asylum. That's right. I mean, yeah. What happened when you first noticed this thing happening when you were 13 and still in an in a institute? I guess that's where Dr. Loomis comes in and he gives you a little, uh, it tells you about things. <laughs> I have no idea. Okay, so Michael Myers murders people because he's an incel woman hater. Yeah, that is a type. And in today's headlines, those assholes tend to use guns or cars. But in the olden days, they use knives. They're called picures. Uh, from the French term, uh, picures, picurism, uh, to uh, prick, essentially. Um, and, and, and these are individuals who uh, use a knife as a substitute for their penis. And, and so they penetrate the victim with, with a knife. Um, the knife becomes their sexual outlet. So why then, when we talk about sex and Halloween, do people only seem to care that Jamie Lee Curtis's character is a virgin? And I'm sure there are feminist classes at Oberlin College where they discuss why the virgin survives and the promiscuous girl doesn't. Oh, there are. And we're going to talk to Jamie Lee about them in the next episode of Unmasked. It's all about scream queens and their sex lives and why we're so obsessed with their sex lives. Hey, creep. 
What if we're the creeps? Lori, dear. He wants to talk to you. He wants to take you out tonight. Stay tuned for our big date with Jamie Lee Curtis. See you in episode four. Standing right there. Poor Lori. Scared another one away. Halloween Unmasked is a co-production of The Ringer and Neon Hum Media. It was written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson, and our producers are Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Mack, and Greta Weber. Production assistance from Kaya McMullen and Karen Navatia, and additional support and a special thanks to Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. And an ultra-special thanks to you creeps for listening to Halloween Unmasked. <laughs>